So adoption. <clears throat> adoption is that thing, I'll argue, that distinguishes Christians as people of faith from every other instance where you hear the words people of faith. Um, in fact, um, as we've been going through the Westminster Confession, you've been going through the Westminster Confession, uh, adoption is a reminder of how the church is different from every single faith group in the world. We are not, I will assert, people of faith or a faith community, at least not in the way the world talks about faith communities. You hear that especially from our national politics, as if there is something that makes us have something in common with one another because we are a faith community. We worship specifically the one true God who exists in three persons, who is also our Father. And there is nothing that we have in common with other faiths. That's an important distinction. We can say with many other faiths, I believe in God, and we should, but we mean something very, very different than what the world means when they say, I believe in God. You'll hear that from the world. Uh, cultural Christianity is uh, still, even though it's on the wane, um, the living expression of our American civil religion. Um, many people will say, I believe in God, but when we say we believe in God, we mean something different. <clears throat> and I'll uh, articulate that we, uh, we compromise our testimony when we try to establish common ground with unbelievers based on this generic idea of faith, this generic idea of belief in God, because we worship the creator of the world who has become specifically our father through Christ. If you're a Christian, you don't just believe in God, you are a son of God. We heard from Matthew chapter 18 that what is it that God requires of us? He requires that we be children. And so there's a warning and there's an encouragement there. The encouragement is that we don't come with our own qualifications. Um, the warning uh, is that we have to come as people forgetting our qualifications, uh, but acknowledging our sonship, depending on our sonship as the means by which we come to God. You don't just believe that the one true and living God is your father. In the same way, we could also talk about our earthly fathers, that we believe in them or we trust them. You can say that, and hopefully it's true. Hopefully you had a good relationship with your father, but it glosses over something more important that existed prior to your trust, namely that you belong to your father as your son, as his son or as his daughter. In fact, you have to say that your trust in your earthly parents didn't come from a revelation. It didn't come from meeting them or getting to know them. We don't come to accept our parents as parents at some point in our lives, uh, at which point we begin to trust them. You can say, uh, our, but our trust was uh, as, a re as a, it was a result of the relationship that existed prior to that trust. Before you can express your trust to your parents, you are a child of your parents. Namely, you are a child of your parents because you were born into that family. Your birth is what establishes that trust. It's not the other way around. And likewise, when we talk about ourselves, especially when we, uh, uh, when we talk about common ground with others, other religious people, we are not, in that sense, religious people, in the sense that we order our lives consistent with service to God. We do serve Him, but not as the world serves with religious duties. Jesus makes that distinction very, very clear, that He doesn't desire us to serve Him as slaves. We do serve Him, but we don't serve him as slaves. We serve him as sons. We serve him as sons because we've received the adoption. And men and women among us today, it's important that uh, we all realize, whether you're a man or a woman, you are a son of God. <laughs> the Lord speaks of you that way. Why? Because uh, the son received the inheritance. This is the, uh, the culture in which the Bible is steeped. The son receives the inheritance. And God sheds his inheritance to man and woman alike. 
Uh, so women, you are sons, and we have to assert that you all are sons. In the same way that men, you are his bride. Uh, you, men and women, are the bride of Christ. Uh, it isn't a gender distinction that we make. Uh, we make that distinction uh, that we are the bride of Christ because he has called all of us uh, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we continue to serve the Lord, but not as slaves, as sons, in a way that's completely different from any other religion, from any other service to God. And it's an important distinction that we make, that when we talk about serving God, and we talk about that among unbelievers, we make sure to note to them that we don't serve God as a slave, that we don't serve God as a religious duty. We serve God out of thankfulness. We serve God out of the relationship that existed prior to our service. Because the creator of all worlds has become your father by the work of Christ. And we serve him out of that relationship. We don't serve him to secure that relationship. So when you talk about unbelievers, especially uh, to people who would profess belief in God, people of other faiths, the question you can ask them, and I think this is a helpful uh, apologetic tool, is when you talk about service to God, well, what kind of God are you serving? Do you matter to this God? And this is a question I think is worth uh, Christians as well as non-Christians contemplating. Do you matter to God? And not only do you matter to God, but what is your what is the meaning of your matter to God? How do you matter? In what way? Because we know, as many religions know, that God is the creator of all worlds. Every creature, man and woman, beast and human, uh, especially men and women, matter to him. He is the almighty God who created the world from nothing. Psalm 104 says, He stretched out the heavens like a curtain, and he laid the foundations of the earth. Yet at the same time, he claims every single one of us, individually by name, from him the whole family of heaven and in earth is named, from Ephesians 3. He knows your name. You matter to God. Not just you as a Christian matters, but the unbelievers matter to God. He knows their name as well. He has named every creature. What is the difference between God knowing the name of his people and God knowing the name of the unbeliever? Well, for the unbeliever, it should be a terrifying thought that God will call out their names at the judgment day and say, Depart from me, you accursed, for I never knew you. He knows their name, but he didn't know them because they've rejected him, because they matter to him. So when we talk about our common ground with unbelievers where, yes, we serve God, uh, we serve him out of either duty or sonship, uh, the corollary to that is we also matter to God. We matter to God whether we're going to be the object of his mercy or we're going to be the object of his wrath. He knows your name. For us, that should be a comforting fact. If you aren't in Christ, that should be a terrifying fact. Only those who know him through Christ can know that they matter to him, and that is a good thing, that they matter to him because he is their father. He's your father. So I'd like to just talk about three things very briefly <clears throat> about what this adoption means, especially as it pertains to how it's interpreted here in the Westminster Confession. There are three, three ways in which adoption transforms our religion. Those three ways are in the object of our faith. Our object, the object of our faith is different because we've been adopted. The motivation for our duty, we have a different motivation for serving God than any other faith. And in the Lord's regard for us, because we are adopted, he looks upon us, not just as that, that we matter because everything matters to God, uh, but he matters in a way that will protect us, um, that he adopts us as sons. So adoption transforms religion in terms of the object of our faith. <clears throat> it's one thing to believe in God, 
It's another thing entirely as the catechism teaches, the Heidelberg Catechism teaches you to have confidence in him. Knowing him and confidence, having confidence in him are two separate things. <clears throat> what does that confidence do? Ephesians 3, 12 tells us through Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That what do we have as a result of our knowledge of God, our adoption into God's family? Boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. If you're a believer, adopted as God's son through Christ, your faith in God is a far cry then from the generic theist who believes in the idea of God. And it's a far cry from the belief that everyone will have at this judgment day when Philippians 2 tells us, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That there are those who will confess Jesus as Lord, but only as their judge, those who have not been adopted. Like I said earlier, this isn't faith. Faith isn't anything by itself. Faith must have an object if it's to have any content. And it's your adoption by which your faith can have your heavenly father as an object, not just your Lord or your judge as an object. So adoption transforms our religion in terms of the object of our faith. He, God becomes our father, not merely our judge. <clears throat> and it's the motivation of our duty. We obey out of faith. Paul talks about faith in this way. He says it is the obedience of faith, that our obedience comes of faith, not of duty. So when I say we don't obey out of duty, don't misunderstand that we don't have a duty to God. God calls all men to live according to his law, to come to repentance and faith uh, because his law is the perfect demand. It's the holy demand for all of life. But we don't obey out of duty. We obey out of faith. We have in our faith inherent obedience. There's a fundamental difference between the obedience of a slave and the obedience of a son. Westminster calls the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that spirit of adoption, if you look in chapter 12. And it's cueing uh, that language or getting a cue from that language from Romans 8 where he calls uh, the spirit of adoption that which is which by which we cry abba father by which we cry out as sons without the spirit of adoption you can know god as god you can even know him as lord you can know him as lawgiver and governor and even to an extent at least to an external extent obey him but the problem with merely obeying god as lord is that you still have a nature that's opposed to him being Children of wrath by nature is the way the scripture calls us, Ephesians 2.3. We're children of wrath by nature, so our obedience will necessarily be imperfect, and our obedience will necessarily not bring, us, uh, not bring us into sonship, not bring us into approval with God. When Ephesians says we are by, by nature children of wrath, Ephesians uses that word children to represent what we are like, what we become like. It's not just a familial relationship like we were children of our father, Adam, uh, who sinned in the garden. Uh, but we are like people of wrath. We become like objects of wrath, being children of wrath. So when you receive, you are received by God through adoption, you receive his spirit of adoption, giving you a new nature. We're no longer children of wrath, having a new nature which is in Christ, having the spirit of adoption indwelling in us. It makes us resemble a new father. It makes us resemble our heavenly father, then resemble our father Adam. And with it, that new nature, we have a new motivation for our obedience. We obey not just the Lord and Creator, but we obey our Father. A son obeys his father, not out of mere obligation, but out of imitation. That the metaphor of child is appropriate because a son looks like his father, not just because there's a genetic, genetic relationship, but because a son imitates his father. Being a child of God means we are imitators of God. As the Father, uh, as Ephesians 5 says, be imitators of God as dear children. 
that we don't just have the nature of God in us um, to give us the, uh, the inherited relationship of God the Father to us, uh, but we are children of him because we imitate him. As the Father loved you in Christ, you love him out of imitation, so you can joyfully even deny your lusts and joyfully offer yourself as a sacrifice, as our Father did, as he offered his Son as a sacrifice, joyfully for the joy set before him, Christ despising the shame, offered himself as a sacrifice. So our adoption changes the motivation of our duty. We, motiva- we are motivated not just in obeisance to our Lord, but imitation of our Father. And it changes the Lord's regard for you. As your relationship to God is transformed by adoption, so is his relationship to you. He has put his name upon us, he says. The most basic thing that happens in any adoption, just as you go from slave to son, you go from adoption uh, with a stroke of a pen, literally, from not a son to a son. It's one of those legal aspects of justification. I think you talked about last week the idea of justification, how adoption is included in that. Justification doesn't change your condition before God. It doesn't make you in your nature holier than you were before you were justified. What it does is it changes your state. God goes from reckoning you as a child of wrath, an object of wrath, to his beloved son, as righteous as his beloved son. It's the same way if you adopt children. What does it take for a child to become yours? It is really the stroke of a pen. It's a legal act. It's an authorized person declaring, this is now your son. This is now your daughter. Adoption changes everything with respect to the parent. It changes everything with respect to the, with respect to the child who's adopted. You go from a stranger to father in an instant through the stroke of a pen, just as you go from straight slave to son to son and daughter. And the Lord goes from Lord to Lord and Father. When he looks on you, it's no longer as a creature that he made to serve him. Given the, uh, the parable of the unprofitable servant <clears throat> in Luke chapter 17. What does the unprofitable servant do when he's done doing his master's work? Does the master say, come, uh, sit and dine with me? No, the master says, go finish your work and then you can eat. The master doesn't invite the servant to his table. The master only invites his sons to his table. What's the difference between the service of the son and the service of the slave? Well, in the master's household, there's no difference. They both alike serve the master, but the son gets to come and eat. Whereas the Lord says to his slave, um, you may not eat until your work is done. The Lord says to his servant, come at once and sit down to eat. The Lord still asks his adopted sons to serve him, but he also gives him at the same time his privileges, his table his liberties for them to enjoy. He says, come and sit down and eat with me. A father will still punish his sons, as the, uh, cate- or the confession reminds us, uh, but he punishes his sons not with his wrath, but with his discipline, with his fatherly discipline. A master would take his servant to court <clears throat> or fire him for unsatisfactory performance, but a son, when a son is unsatisfactory, when a son is delinquent in his duties, a father doesn't fire his son, a father doesn't judge his son, a father disciplines his son, and he nurtures his son to greater obedience because he loves his son, and his love works out into uh, the intercession that makes his son more like his father. When the son is not like his father, the father acts to make his son more like him because his goal is not to have the best service of his son. His goal is to make his son more like him so that his son would be prepared to receive his estate. The father has an estate to think about, so he wants his son to be deserving 
to be conformed to a, a person who is a deserving of inheriting all that he owns. And so because you are adopted, you can call God Abba Father, <coughs> and you can have the confidence in coming to him to ask for anything because you have the confidence of a son that you will never be cast off, that you'll be disciplined but not cast off forever because you're sealed until you reach your inheritance in the day of redemption. <coughs>